from its outset, February was often a month, well, for this podcast anyway, of looking back. Essays from Yesterday, Volume 4, Blast from the Past, Volume 7. Your mailbag this month largely reflects that and in particular is looking back at the recent past of the stock market's performance, which in the words of one listener has often been dismal, both the market at large and many of our fool favorite picks. So let's talk about that. The ups and the downs. I'll have fool analyst Jim Mueller on portfolio moves, timing, and more than once this week, the phrase Gardner-Kretzmann continuum popped back up. So you know what? I, Gardner, will be joined as well later on by David Kretzmann in the house this week. We got the band back together only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Yes, it was a month often of looking back, although the only reason that I spend much time looking back is I like history, and I think history can help us live forward better. So when we go blast from the past or reread essays from yesterday, it's largely in order to be reminded of what's happened in the past and what we did in the past, what you and I thought and did, and can we do it better going forward? So I think the big reason to look back at the past is not to be nostalgic, it's to be earnest and to look to be smarter, which of course is one of the three key words of the Motley Fool's purpose statement to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. And I hope I'll do a little bit of each of those with you this week. Now, one thing that was not from the past, other than it was last week's podcast, was talk about games and philosophy. And I really enjoyed, I hope you did too, C.T. Nguyen, who joined with me. We've got a couple Twitter hot takes. I didn't get any deep or thoughtful notes so far about games, philosophy, the game of life, the games of investing. Often the way it seems to work, for podcasts near the end of the month is I get thoughtful notes in the following month's mailbag. But I remain fascinated by T's work, agency as the differentiating force when we think about games and what what makes games very different as an art form from any other. It's that you and I make choices within that game. And he's gone on to think very deeply and write quite widely as the podcast was titled last week, From Twister to Twitter which I think is apt. Yep, we were all over the map with that conversation, and we closed it out with a weekend extra just a few days ago, our Mount Rushmore of board games. Speaking of Twitter and board games, let's go to our hot takes this month. This one came in from Sam at Investing Chef in response to what's on his Mount Rushmore of tabletop games, wrote Settlers of Catan, Sequence, Wits and Wagers, and Quirkle. Thane Walton, at Thane the Brain, replying to the same question because T and I invited each of you to share what's on your Mount Rushmore of games. Thane Walton also included wits and wagers, which Thane, you wrote, never gets old for me, helps that I'm a sucker for numbers trivia. Well, since wits and wagers popped up in both of those lists, it's also in my library. And I'm going to say for anybody who doesn't already know the game wits and wagers, I think you're going to really enjoy it. The game is premised on asking a trivia question that nobody can really answer. I mean, in all likelihood, I'll just make one up here. What is the average number of inches of rainfall in Portland, Oregon each year? Now, nobody really knows that, especially taken out to one decimal point. 
But each person around the table playing the game speculates, gives their best guess. And so then you bring in all the guesses simultaneously and you line them up from high to low and you make a wager. There's a little bit of wisdom in the crowds going on here, but you make a wager as to what is closest to the actual answer. And then, of course, the game does furnish the actual answer. In my example, the actual number of inches of rainfall in Portland, Oregon, which happens, since I'm Googling it as we speak, to be 36 inches a year. By the way, Seattle's annual rainfall is 37.49 inches. And here's the shocker for me. Speaking of Washington, Washington, D.C., where I live, averages 41.8 annual inches of rainfall, which is more than Seattle or Portland, which I think surprises a lot of people anyway. That's kind of how Wits and Wagers works. It's a really replayable game. It invites all ages. It invites replay. It is a very fine game. So thank you for those. One other Twitter hot take on a totally different topic. This is about adopting a foolish mindset to investing. Thank you, Holly, the animator girl at Kelly Joe. That's with just a J-O-1822 on Twitter. You wrote, for me, it took about six months to be capital F foolish. When I just started, I didn't know what I was doing and panicked and sold a lot. And then I found the Motley Fool through a YouTube ad. And slowly but surely, I learned from Motley Fool Live and the write-ups. And now I really know what I'm buying and to hold. So thank you for that, Holly, the animator girl. And it's a reminder, by the way, that one of our best features, I think, at The Motley Fool these days is Motley Fool Live, which is basically the television channel that runs concurrently alongside our web publishing. So members know this, that you can join us. Some of the people that I regularly feature on the show, for example, someone like Jim Mueller or David Kretzman has been on Motley Fool Live before. It's a wonderful opportunity in two regards. First, if you're somebody who's an avid follower of the market and you you were watching CNBC too much in 2022, well, you might enjoy a little bit of a different mentality with Motley Fool Live. So for people who are really avid, I think it's a, a wonderful feature. But then also for people who have questions. After all, questions are what drive this podcast, especially our mailbag, every month. But I just do it one week a month. Imagine if we were answering questions, which by the way, our member services does at the Motley Fool every day. But imagine if we were doing so as sort of a television program. Well, that's a lot of the way Motley Fool Live functions. So thank you for calling that out, Holly, the animator girl. And those are the Twitter hot takes for February 2023. All right. Rule breaker mailbag item number one, Arvind Sharma. Thank you for this note, Arvind. David, I enjoyed this week's podcast on essays from the past. What you said through last year or a few years ago or a decade ago when the market was up or down. At the times of printed news or in your email letters or during the era of printed media or digital radio or podcasts, or who knows, in your future avatar powered by a chatbot, one thing I can say with confidence, Arvin writes, is you are consistent. Over the past few months, you've emphasized sticking to your principles in good and bad times and proved that good stocks beat the market. It is a confidence booster for me, Arvin writes, when I hear this consistent message from you again, 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 and again, and I hope forever. While few may think it is boring, it is very soothing and makes me 
better, and stronger. In short, you are trustworthy. Truly appreciate what you do. Thank you, Arvind Sharma. Well, thank you, Arvind. I really appreciate you taking the time to write in. It does mean a lot to me, I think. If you're going to be or try to be a leader in this world, I think being dependable, being reliable is something that matters a lot. One of the funny definitions I've sometimes heard of leadership is leaders solve more problems than they create. And I think that being constant, in fact, I have a great Warren Bennis quote about this, is a key ingredient. And I've mentioned Warren Bennis's book on becoming a leader a number of times before. I think it's just an outstanding book that all humans should read. But Bennis talks about the four ingredients that leaders have that generate and sustain trust. And I want to mention before I go into his short list of these four ingredients that George Schultz, uh, who died uh, two years ago at the age of more than 100, of course, the longtime diplomat, businessman, economist, I'm reminded, and I would say statesman, at the end of his life, George Schultz took the time to write, after 100 years of living, what really works in this world. And he settled on the word trust, which he calls the coin of the realm. Anybody can Google and read this wonderful essay where he talks about the coin of the realm trust. And I really think it's it's so true for our world today. Not just what I try to do with you by showing up every week here for this podcast, but I think The Motley Fool tries to do that for all of our members in good times and bad. I think that any business needs to be building trust with its customers, with its employees, and certainly with its partners and suppliers. And I would further say that any leader to truly lead needs to have the trust of those who would follow. And at a global level, I think that if you want to be a nation that leads our world, I think you need to be building trust. So I am just a huge fan of that capital T word, Arvind, and George Schultz's essay is a great example. But you know, Warren Bennis talked about four ingredients that leaders have that generate and sustain trust. And here they are real quick. The first is constancy. And I think we just talked about that. Bennis writes, whatever surprises leaders themselves may face, they don't create any for the group. Leaders are all of a piece. They stay the course. So constancy was the first. The second is congruity. And I, I love this one. I hope I hope I'm doing this through this podcast and anybody can call me out either in a mailbag or offline anytime if they don't feel like I'm trying to be congruous, which Bennis defines as leaders walk their talk. In true leaders, there's no gap between the theories they espouse and the life they practice. The final two are reliability. Leaders are there when it counts. They're ready to support their coworkers in the moments that matter. And then finally, number four, and by the way, the other three don't count if you don't have number four, but number four, integrity. Leaders honor their commitments and promises. So Arvind, I hear you on consistency. I do shoot for that. I think of that as one of the prerequisites to lead. I also want to say that all of us should be going for all four of these at all time. We're all human, so we're going to fall down. We're going to have blind spots. We're going to miss it here and there. But at least you know that I'm trying to deliver dependability and trust. I think that's so important, especially in a digital world, especially one of fake news or questionable theories about what to do with your money that I think are always on offer broadly across the internet. So Arvind, I'm glad that you tune in here every week and thanks for taking the time to write.
All right, on to Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number two, Greg Land. Thank you for writing in, Greg. This is not the easiest note to read, but I'm happy to share it, and thank you for sharing. Greg writes, I listen weekly to the Rule Breaker Investing podcast. I've had a subscription to your service for a couple of years. As I look at my purchases that were made at the time and probably still are your active recommendations, frankly, the best I can say is that the performance has been dismal. And Greg, I used your word to lead off this week's podcast. This is not cherry picking, as I actually currently own every stock listed below, in large part because they were recommended, Greg writes, while it's my decision what and when to purchase, advertising as if you, quotes, beat the market is, from my experience, laughable, not in the funny sense of the word. Suffice to say, hearing you discuss Amazon is a whatever bagger is more than aggravating for me, and while technically might be true, it is also... Greg writes, completely disingenuous. What would be a better representation of your performance would be from the last time the stock was actually selected, not the first time. I order from the company frequently. My job is using Amazon Web Services every day as a DevOps engineer, but as a stock, it's been terrible for the last two years, and nobody knows the future, Greg writes, speaking of Amazon. To close it out in the world of 4% risk-free T-bills only federally taxed, based on the performance below, why should I continue spending money on a subscription? And Greg closes with five stocks that he's bought, presumably by following our foolish advice. The first two are down more than 80%. Fiverr is down 86%. Lemonade is down 83%. He then lists CrowdStrike down 53%. Amazon down 35%. And the last one is Tencent, which is down 31%. So I guess I have three thoughts back for you, Greg. The first is, I am very sorry that your joining Full Services has led you to invest money in stocks that have gone down. Now, I can say that to Greg. I could also say that to 100,000 other people, in fact, more than 100,000 other people who've joined us within the last couple of years and are probably well down from where they thought they would be, and certainly well down from where the market started two years ago. I feel the same way, by the way. I'm also well down, and I'm certainly disappointed in the performance that I have generated myself off of my portfolio, and it's invested not in each of these stocks. In fact, I've not recommended Fiverr, Lemonade, or CrowdStrike, but I certainly have recommended Amazon, and mine was the Tencent uh, recommendation as well in Motley Fool Rule Breakers, both of those down 30% or more for you, Greg. So let me just say, first of all, I'm sorry. I hope that you heard from our previous listener, Arvind, that I'm consistent, that I'm consistent over time. And I feel as if your own reflections are not just true for you, which they clearly are for the last two years, but true for so many people who have gotten started if they did investing in the last couple of years after an incredible run up that we saw in the summer of. 2020 to a breathtaking high in 2021, it's been pretty much straight down, especially for a lot of the kinds of companies that I favor, rule breakers. So I I don't think that your experience is that radically different from many others, Greg. And so if misery loves company, well, you've got it. Uh, The second point I want to make is that this is a very short time frame to reflect on. Uh, We can look back over the 30 years of The Motley Fool, and I've seen other two-year time frames that are like that. It's going to happen from time to time. It sure has to me. And as I've often said, it will happen again in future. So for anybody who's playing the long game, which I am, and I think most of us here at The Motley Fool are doing, bad news. 
it's going to happen again. This this kind of performance will happen again in future. So I just want to make sure that you understand that this does, in my experience, recur about once every 10 years. We have a really bad market for about 18 months or so. And I feel as if we're on the tail end of that now, but you're looking backward over the last two years and you're seeing just how bad things have been. And the third and final response I have for you is just keep swimming. That's a really important phrase that I've been using over the last couple of years. It, of course, comes from Finding Nemo, one of Pixar's spectacular short animated films, but it means a lot more to me than just uh, words from a cartoonish fish. I think for me, it is about making sure that you are obeying a process which makes sense for you. So what we have talked about and, in fact, exemplified for 30 years now is steady dollar cost averaging in good markets and in bad into the best companies that we know, and especially for rule breakers with a willingness to be wrong, especially in the short term, a willingness to lose, to make some bad stock picks. You reference Amazon, which has indeed been probably the best stock I've ever picked, despite its poor performance over the last year or two. And I guess that's really a matter of perspective, because when I think about investing or The Motley Fool, I think in 30-year increments, or at least three minimum year increments in terms of looking at performance. But I totally understand how somebody who's relatively new, either to The Motley Fool or to investing, hasn't had that experience and in some ways hasn't been able to learn and see that perspective. So I think it's important to talk about what works over time and what wins, and that's always where I'm going to be mainly focused. But if it sounds disingenuous to you, well, it certainly isn't intended disingenuously. I just think, I I hope I speak for everybody at The Motley Fool saying, we continue to do our best. And over time, I believe our best is better than the market. But over any short-term period, yeah, you can end up with a stock that gets cut in half or worse. And one of my favorite podcasts, if you want to just Google, uh, maybe a Rule Breaker Investing episode before you started listening, it's called Losing to Win. And for me anyway, it's my highest eloquence I can bring numerically backed as to why winning requires losing in the short term, at least the way that we invest. Greg, in conclusion, thank you very much for writing. I always ask everybody who joins a Motley Fool service, are you doing better with us than you would without? And I would encourage you to ask yourself that question. And if you truly don't think that you're doing better with us than you would have without, I'd be the first to say, change your services. Either cancel and take another Motley Fool service or cancel us all together if we're not truly helping you do better with us than you are without. Greg Land, thank you for the note. Fool on. All right, on to Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number three. And oh my golly, look, it's Jim Mueller. Jim, it's great to see you again. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks, David. Always a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to see we're not a video podcast, so people can't see that you're at Fool HQ today. One of our employees, Jim, I believe you've been to the office far more days than you've not <laughs> since we reopened more than a year ago. Am I right? I have, I have not worked at home since uh, we reopened in June. That is remarkable. Now, I can't say that, certainly. And a lot of our employees, many of them have not spent many days at all in the office. Jim, I especially want to say I appreciate the people who do go to the office. And I am getting over there a little bit more in the last few months than I had previously. But thank you for your fealty to the bricks and mortar of our office building and to water coolers, you know, like real ones. Well, your your pattern was a uh, couple of days in the office, and but three days at home anyway, before all this. 
That's true. Just by nature of where I am in my career and et cetera, that is, that is indeed true. There are several of us uh, from different departments who show up on a regular basis. And, I, and as I say, I really do appreciate that. I'm sure others would feel the same way. And then a lot of people are glad that they don't have an hour-long commute that they used to have. So I think we're still all over the map in different places on this one. Well, Jim, this note's from Mark Kirch. It might be Mark Kirk, but I think it's Mark Kirch. And Mark, thank you for writing. Hi, David. I've been a fool for about five and a half years now. And over that time, I've learned the hard way that your advice to do nothing during market turmoil is the best way to go. And that trying to time the market based on current events is a small f fool's errand. In particular, I thought that I was making a brilliant move by selling most of my stocks in early March of 2020, figuring that a massive COVID recession was on the way and that I'd be able to jump back into the market at a much lower cost basis once the economy tanked. Mark goes on, I felt smart for a few weeks as I watched what had been the holdings in my portfolio drop 35%. Who knew that Congress would enact the largest stimulus in history, dropping interest rates to near zero, and that the market would roar back as quickly as it had dropped, especially the rule breaker kinds of stocks that made up Mark Wright's most of my holdings? Surely this was just a momentary blip, and the downturn would resume, or would it? After an agonizing several weeks, my FOMO overcame me. And I repurchased the same stocks I'd sold a couple of months earlier, but at a higher cost basis than I had sold them. I felt like the biggest small F fool in the history of investing. And I became convinced that your advice to buy and tenaciously hold great companies really is the best way to go. There's going to be a turn here, though, Jim. Here's It's coming soon. Mark continues, following my re-entry into the market, the shame of my foolishness, small F, was assuaged as I watched my portfolio double in value over the next year. I was feeling great in February of 2021. Since that time, I've watched its value decline by as much as 60%. But I learned my lesson, and I haven't sold anything other than when The Motley Fool issued a sell recommendation, having the foolish just keep swimming mindset really reduced my anxiety level, even in the face of massive drops. Recently, Jim Mueller, recently though, Mark writes, I've been second guessing myself. Now there's more to this note, but let me invite you in. Jim, any reflections on just the first couple of paragraphs as Mark has experienced the ups and the downs of COVID investing? <laughs> he has certainly experienced the ups and downs. Um, and we all have. I mean, a lot of my own portfolio has been doing the same thing, up and down and up and down. March March of 2020 was not a fun month for me at all. Uh, the rest of 2020 was pretty cool. Uh, 2021 was all right. 2022 kind of sucked. I hope I'm allowed to use that word on this podcast. Sure you can. Sure you can. <laughs> and, uh, but since 2023 began, it's been doing okay. I mean, yeah, we're all we're all experiencing that. So I know exactly where you are. The one possible issue I might uh, raise is how often are you checking your balances? So Richard Thaler, uh, Nobel Prize winner of economics for behavioral finance after uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, famously got it a couple of years previously, He's done some research into this, into how often people check their portfolios. And he found that the more often people look at their portfolios, the worse their performance is. 
not because the perform the stock performance is any different. Okay, it's because we tend to react to what we're seeing. Okay, and he said, if you're checking it daily, you're going to see down more often than you're going to see up. You're going to see red more often than green. Then if you check it monthly or quarterly or even better yet, annually, you only check it once a year. Odds are that you're going to see a green result. That's a really good point. And so his his suggestion is to stop looking. My my addition to that, and I, f- I feel kind of bold uh, saying that I can better a uh, Nobel uh, Prize winning economist, is to turn off CNBC, okay? Because they're designed to grab your attention and make things, almost to blow things out of proportion. I mean, especially on bad down down days. Uh, so one, one, stop looking as often. And two, maybe print out a couple of quotations that I'm going to read off to you. Uh, I have these on my profile. Uh, one of them is uh, Peter Lynch's quote, far more money has been lost by investors preparing for corrections or trying to at- anticipate corrections than has been lost in corrections themselves. And then another one, David, see if you can uh, name the, the speaker. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. <laughs> I'm just going to with Charlie Munger, but I don't know, Jim. Much, much older than that. Uh, the mathematician Blaise Pascal. Pascal. Wonderful. Pascal, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's really hard to get over those emotions. Really hard. And one way I have found that helps doing it, it doesn't, it's not a perfect uh, answer, but it really helps, is to slow you down by writing out and writing in a journal. And not allowing yourself, setting a rule saying not allowing yourself to sell on market down days. Okay, just just set that rule and say, the market is crashing today, and I and I feel rotten, but I'm going to obey my rule and and go go with that. Another thing that might help you, and and think about this on a good day, on on a calm day when you're when you're calm, and and not uh, feeling all stressed out and everything is to figure out, uh, to write down what you're going to do when the market collapses. Are you going to sell? Are you going to sell all? Are you going to sell parts? Are you going to, or are you going to buy? Premeditated action. Yes, premeditated action. Assuming you can actually follow through with your premeditations. Right. Although you stand a much better chance by articulating them, right, Jim? That's what you're saying. That's exactly where I was going. Uh, It really helps to set this up ahead of time. So that you, when when you're in the moment, you can uh, you can go back to that and say, "Oh, I thought about this ahead of time, and in this situation, I'm not going to sell. I'm going to buy because there's there's stuff that's going on sale." So, Jim, I think you've done a great job speaking to what I would call a, a capital F foolish mindset, and a lot of ways, our correspondent here, Mark, I think understands that and feels that he he reflects how maybe before he had that mindset. He was kind of getting whipsawed. And by the way, if there were ever a reason to be or go bipolar, the last couple of years of stock market activity <laughs> uh, has given you every nudge you would ever need because the extremes of highs and lows and the rapidity and flip-flopping both directions of these is very rare in market history. So I think a lot of us have been forced to confront our own psychology in a way that because of the extremities of the externalities, we never necessarily have faced that before. So a lot of us are asking kinds of new questions. 
But Jim, let me just continue Mark's note a little bit longer because I guess he has what I'll call the key question that I think we should speak to uh, coming up. So Mark goes on to say that second guessing that he was feeling, he says, started when I listened to an old interview on a full podcast with Howard Marks, where he was talking about his book, Mastering the Market Cycle. Mark writes, I'm at an age a couple of years younger than you are. So if I'm 56, let's just say Mark's like 54. A couple of years younger than you are, but I'm at an age, Mark writes, where the value of my investments significantly overshadows the additional amount that I'm able to invest on a yearly basis. So a large downturn has a real and potentially lasting impact on my wealth that isn't proportionally offset by new investments, especially as retirement appears on the horizon in 10 to 15 years. So he writes, in conclusion, all this brings me finally to my question, am I doing myself a disservice by following the fool's standard advice to ignore market valuations and just stay the course through market cycles? Aren't there times, Mark writes, in the market cycle when stock prices are so far ahead of underlying value that it makes sense to sell and wait for the cycle to shift? In hindsight, and that's a key phrase, Jim, but in hindsight, February of 2021 looks like one of those times to me. I look forward to your response. Thanks for all you do, your dedication to making the world smarter, happier, and richer is appreciated, I hope, by Mark Kirch. Jim, your thoughts on market timing and market cycles. Howard Marks is a phenomenally intelligent, smart investor. Uh, but he is not you, and he is not me. We have to uh, invest in the ways that make sense for us and our situations. Uh, I'd, I'd like to address a couple of points. One, I hope the the idea that the, your, the size of your portfolio makes it seem like uh, your small your your uh, relatively smaller investments won't make a difference. Invest anyway. I hope you are, uh, especially during market downturns, uh, where you can get more bang from your buck, as long as you trust that the companies will make make a return. That will shorten the amount of time it takes before your portfolio reaches its previous high. Two, in the uh, in the depths of a bear market, we humans tend to th- well in the depths of a, a bull market too. We humans tend to do what's called recency bias. That is, what's happened <laughs> recently is going to proje- is going to be the way it is for all time, and that I think is affecting your uh, sense of how long it's going to it's it's going to take. Unless you've really shifted uh, positions around, uh, I think your estimate of ten to twelve years just to get back to where you were is probably pessimistic. I'm not guaranteeing it is or isn't, but uh, the, I think the odds are that it, that it is and it will happen sooner than you think. And three, hindsight is, I think it's the cruelest of behavioral biases. It always tells us what we should have done bef- uh, when we didn't know what we should have done by knowing something in the future that we did not know at the time. In February 2021, there was no way you could tell that that was a perfect time to sell. No way in the world, okay? We we cannot know the future. It is impossible to know the future. I've got a six-inch crystal ball sitting on my desk, and it, it, it makes a great lens. It sucks as at predicting the future. I, I've watched it, and it has not clouded up once, okay? It doesn't work. And I, I, I have that to remind myself that we cannot predict the future. We just can't. But hindsight makes us think we could have. We, we take a certain route home, 
and we get into a traffic jam and you say, and you might have been thinking, oh, maybe I should go to the service streets today. And you get in a traffic jam on the freeway and says, oh, I knew I should have gone on the service streets. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. But but you think you did because you've learned something afterwards, after the time you had to make the decision. Which is where I think those those quotes by Pascal and uh, Lynch come into play. We make the best decisions we can ahead of time, and then we can adjust them over time, but we can't go back and remake them and, and go back and do them over. You uh, Again, try to plan out what you might do ahead of time when you're calm, and then when the, when the, uh, the, the stuff happens. <laughs> I was trying to think of a polite way of using that phrase. Uh, when it happens... Go back to what you wrote when you were calmer and thinking things out ahead. Yes, well said, Jim. And I'll just add that, um, well, our first mailbag item this week was about consistency. And I certainly grant, I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson, that a a foolish small f consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. So I certainly can grant that sometimes consistency isn't your friend. For example, one of the many definitions of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. But I want to underline doing the same thing over and over again when you're being consistent, especially through market cycles with a strategy that makes sense for you. We all have different risk tolerances. We all have different amounts of money and different numbers of years before we're going to try to draw down on that money. There's no one size fits all answer for how to manage a portfolio. We do our best to give you principles that you can use, Mark and everybody else listening. But I do think there's something to be said for continuing the approach that you're taking in the markets, not changing midway through, um, not investing, as we've sometimes said, Jim, with a rear view mirror. Driving with a rear view mirror is not a great way to navigate going forward. I think staying at a consistent speed, going in a consistent direction, is much more likely to end in success. It sure has, and it sure has for me. So I hope, Mark, those thoughts are helpful. And I see another fool in the house here as we open it up with Rule Breaker Mailbag Item Number Four. And I really appreciate this one, Jim Mueller and David Kretzman, because each of you is specifically mentioned in this mailbag item. David, it's great to see you again, my friend. And David Kretzman, you have made many appearances on this podcast over the years, as has Jim Mueller. David, what are you doing these days around the fool? I do a little bit of anything and everything within product, helping lead our product team here at The Motley Fool. Always something new every day. And you and I collaborated unwittingly on one of the more important concepts that's emerged from this podcast over the last eight years, and that's the Gardner-Kretzman continuum. Now, David, that is going to be called out not just in this mailbag item, but in the one after. Would you briefly restate, just sort of give a definition for our new listeners? Yeah, and if we had known it would take on a life of its own over the past decade, we might have put in a little more thought when we came up with it, but maybe the spark of the idea was uh, was all, all it took. So... The Gardner-Kretzmann continuum, or the GKC score, um, is essentially just taking the number of stocks in your portfolio and dividing it by your age. And David and I were just theorizing that, generally speaking, it's probably applicable that anyone, regardless of your stage in life, it's probably a good goal for you to have a GKC score of one 
or higher. So as an example, if you're 36 years old and you have 36 stocks, you would have a GKC score of one. If you're 50 and you have 100 stocks, you'd have a GKC of two. So that's the general idea, skewing toward more diversification in your portfolio, not less. Yes, and I think one of the charms of the GKC, David, is that it adds, it brings a degree of mathematical precision that is somewhat unnecessary. The, the basic understanding <laughs> here is that over the course of time, you should probably increasingly diversify your portfolio. Uh, and it makes more sense for somebody who's 20 to have 20 stocks and someone who's 60 to have 60 stocks. And yet we did express it mathematically, and it has taken on a life of its own. And I continue regularly to think that way, and I think many of our listeners do too, which is why we're going to move to Paul Ward's note here on Rule Breaker Mailbag Item Number 4. And this one's from Paul Ward, writing in, gentlemen, from the United Kingdom. Hi, David. Hello from the UK. After listening to the podcast, Blast from the Past, Volume 7, I was inspired to write this note and get your opinion on a particular conundrum that I'm facing. While my personal investing journey started over 20 years ago, my initial investments were in managed funds, and it's only been in the past five years or so that I've become more fully invested in individual stocks. My education with The Motley Fool has been even more recent than that, and it's fair to say that in hindsight, some of my initial stock picks were not good ones, Paul writes, and have certainly not delivered the returns I was hoping for. Yet, having become more fully immersed in the Rule Breaker philosophy in the past couple of years through listening to your podcast and subscribing to the Rule Breaker service, I'm only too aware of some of the mistakes that I made in those early days. And to my credit, one thing I've always done, Paul writes, is hold for the long term which is where the scenario I now want to share with you, he didn't know he was with us three, with you, manifest. So here we go, Jim and David. The introduction of a commission fee by my current broker. That's interesting. An introduction of a commission fee. David, Jim, I feel as if all of the commissions are going away, not being reintroduced. Guys? Yeah, this is a, this broker's going in the wrong direction. <laughs> Zig while others are zagging, but okay. I don't think this is a, a good zig in this case. Well, nevertheless, this is Paul's broker, and maybe it's like, I don't know, maybe Paul's broker was in his wedding. This could be a very important relationship to Paul, so let's keep going. Which previously offered commission-free trading, this broker has encouraged me to transfer a number of my stocks from a standard stock trading account to a tax-free account known in the UK as an ISA. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as transferring lock, stock, and barrel. So to do this, I have to sell all my holdings in the standard account and then repurchase them in the tax-free account. This I had intended to do wholesale until I heard the podcast, Blast from the Past, and your recommendation to revisit the six principles of a rule breaker portfolio, which I duly did. Now, upon listening to these six principles, a couple of things dawned on me, and David, I'm aiming this one at you. One, based on the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum, my portfolio is over-diversified. I have holdings in 71 different stocks and ETFs, and being only 46 years of age, I'm on the wrong side of that continuum. I'm going to pause it right there. David, your thoughts immediately. Well, generally speaking, I think for most people, it's a better thing to be over-diversified than under-diversified. Now, of course, 
that that's going to be a different number for any person. But in addition to the GKC score, which we're, we're talking about right now, we probably need to come up with something along the lines of a sleep score. Like, are you sleeping well <laughs> at night with your portfolio? And I think for most people, more often than not, the more stocks you hold, the bigger your cash position, probably the less you're worrying about your portfolio and less likely, likely you will be to take a short-sighted emotional action in your portfolio. So I, I think... You know, the, the over-diversified number will be different for everyone. But personally, I, I don't think 70 stocks for someone in their 30s is a wild number. And just to be clear on this, David, because we're all about this mathematical precision, which is unnecessary but beautiful, <laughs> 71 stocks and Paul is 46, which, by the way, is a 1.54 GKC. So, David, I think you and I are both coming down on the same side on this one. That's not a big problem necessarily. Maybe a bigger problem is having to sell all your positions in order to reposition them in a tax-free account. Now, I do know we're working with a CFA on this podcast because Jim Mueller has his CFA charter. Now, Jim, I don't know if that extends to the UK, and I know you're not providing personalized investment advice here, but do you have any quick thoughts before we go to the end of Paul's note? Well, a couple of quick thoughts. Um I do not know if the UK has anything equivalent to uh, what's called the wash sale rule in the United States. That is, if you sell something at a loss in a taxable account, you have to not buy it in any account you have control over or that you are a beneficiary of, like a spouse's account or something, for 30 days on either side of that sale date. Uh, otherwise, you don't. You're not allowed to take that uh, to take that loss on your taxes. So I don't know if the UK has such. I hope, uh, Paul, you know that and would be working around that if if such exists. A second point is talk to your broker. Maybe you've been with them long enough so that uh, they could give you a lower commission if they insist on mm. uh, uh, creating commission, uh, charging you commissions, or if you've been a long and loyal customer of theirs. Um, let uh, see if they can get no commissions. See if they can extend that to, uh, for you uh, going forward. Yeah, Jim, we allowed the possibility that Paul's broker was in his wedding, and and if that's true, <laughs> I'm thinking the answer should be, I mean, yes. Yeah, um, but if not, and if it's high enough where, I mean, if it's like seven or eight dollars, I probably wouldn't worry about it unless you're investing only like a hundred dollars at a time. Each purchase is uh, like a hundred dollars at a time. Uh, if it's if it's higher than that, uh, I, I probably wouldn't worry about it too much. So after those two questions and your consideration of them, I have a question back for David and Kretzi here. What is is there an uh, you say a one point five four GKC yep. number is decent? Is there an upper limit that you would say might be too much? There's like a four or five. Is or the 10. ratio can the ratio ever get David Kretzman too high? We, we haven't run into a scenario where a listener has written in and challenged the upper limit. So I, I, I'm waiting for someone to accept the challenge. You know, maybe uh, someone's newborn has a portfolio of 200 stocks and we're looking at a GKC in the thousands. Uh, so there, there's some ways to, to, you know, stretch stretch the boundaries of the score. But no, I, so far I haven't encountered anyone writing in or on Twitter um, who has what would be seen as an obscene score. Um, but I'm sure there is a limit, you know, just from what someone's practically speaking, able to, to follow in their portfolio. But I haven't personally encountered it yet. So who was that famous investor uh, who owned thousands and thousands of stocks? 
Shelby Davis. Shelby Davis. Yeah, the Davis yeah. dynasty, and Shelby Davis was right. a uh, was famous for making a lot of money over the course of his lifetime, and he just just kept buying and just never sold. Ended up with he had a very high GKC even <laughs> as an older gentleman, David Cressman. And by the way, David, earlier you referenced sleeping at night and the sleep number. That's something that you and I are going to address on the final mailbag item of this particular week. So David, you and I will speak to sleeping at night and having a portfolio allocation that lets you do so on the following item. By the way, Paul does mention for sleep number fans, his sleep number is around 30. He he mentions in a postscript. He also mentions, by the way, that this opportunity or maybe this forced opportunity to sell and then rebuy applies only to about 30 of his stocks, not all 71. So just a little bit more context. But Gentlemen, I wanted to speak to one other aspect of his note because he's talking about repurchasing all of his holdings if he's going to do this. Has him likely, he says, saddling his portfolio with the good stuff along with the bad, the winners as well as the losers. And so he's asking, basically, does he go like for like? Does he take this opportunity to reduce his overall number of holdings, even if it means locking in pretty significant losses on stocks that he'd be selling at a loss. He mentions Teladoc. He mentions Fastly. The final line of his note is, I've thought for a while I have too many stocks in my portfolio, but to echo Jim Mueller, I prefer a glacial approach to selling. What would you do? All right. Well, since we have both Jim Mueller and David Kretzman here, let's speak to the end of this note. Jim, thoughts back on a guy who's like, should I rebuy the winners along with the losers or which ones or what do I do here? Oh, I'm going to reflect this right back at you, uh, Paul. If you were not going to be doing, if you're not going to be making this transfer, what would you be doing? Would you be closing out some of the positions, maybe repositioning some other positions? Is and and look at it that way rather than uh, buying back lo- buying back losers and uh, uh, selling winners and and that stuff. I mean, because. L- where the where the stocks are held in, in accounts doesn't really matter, except when it comes to tax treatment. Uh, but from an investing point of view, it has to be an investing question, and rather than tax returns or or selling a uh, selling at a loss right now, and hopefully it's a good enough company that it's going to come back. Answer the question this way for yourself. If I was not doing this, what would I be doing with this portfolio? Today? I like that a lot, Jim. Yeah, and David Kretzman, I mean, as I think about Paul's situation, I feel the same way. It's sort of like if you're going to have to reset, what stocks would you want to have in your portfolio anyway? And not just for Paul Ward, but for all of us listening and speaking, if you're invested in things that you don't want to be invested in, but you're holding on, hoping to get back to even, let's say, David, um, this is not probably what you should be doing anyway. Yeah, to, to me, this seems like a natural catalyst for some spring cleaning in a portfolio. In, in a portfolio, I think arbitrarily holding something that you're no longer really interested in, just hoping that it'll come back. Or you know, I, I appreciate the the principle of it, but I think we don't we don't want to be too anchored to any given stock that we own. And I think particularly in this case, uh, again, without like like Jim, I'm not familiar with the, the intricacies of UK tax law. I, I wouldn't let losses be what stops you from selling something, especially in a taxable account. But potentially locking in that tax loss could actually be a benefit to offset some of your gains. 
for, for myself, typically when I'm looking at a spring cleaning in my portfolio every year or two, uh, I'll, I'll typically start with the weeds in the portfolio, the, the losers in the portfolio that are down 70 or 80 or 90% and trim, trim there versus starting with the winners. So I, I, I like the idea of a spring cleaning every now and then. So maybe, David and Jim, this is a real opportunity for Paul. I mean, he's being, sounds like his hand is being forced a little bit here to reposition because of commissions into a tax-free account. But maybe he has an opportunity to truly make his portfolio reflect his best vision for the future, regardless of the past performance of these stocks. Sometimes you should hold on to that thing that's down. Maybe it has a great balance sheet and you know it really well, and it's just reacting to a bad quarter of earnings, let's say, or maybe a cyclical industry. Other times, maybe you should sell your very best stock, the the one that's performed best. Maybe it's outstripped at least in the near term, its own corporate results. So, I mean, I think everything is contextual, but guys, as we finish this up, Paul Ward and others, I hope this has been helpful. You've taken us on a journey through the GKC, thinking through the Jim Mueller, I love this, Jim, glacial approach to selling. Is this a is this a branded term that you're using? Is this a book coming out from you soon? <laughs> I don't know about a book. Well, maybe I should uh, register that at the trademark office across the street. I mean, street. glacial approach to selling.com probably has not been claimed yet. So, Jim, as long as I didn't mention it on this podcast, nobody's going to nobody's going to register it, I don't think. It's it goes back to the letter we, letter we were talking about just previously uh in that don't let your emotions dictate and don't don't react in the moment. Uh, but take your time and think about it and look at the company and make a decision, letting your thinking brain, your slow brain, as Kahneman talks about, uh, catch up and and help you do better. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Jim Mueller, for joining us. You You got called out specifically by Paul, so we had to have you on. But thanks for a couple of good mailbag points. I'm going to bid you adieu. Keep David with us as we close out this week's podcast. Jim, full on. All right. My pleasure, David. All right, and on to Rule Breaker Mailbag item number five to close out this week from Andreas Ham and David Kretzman. I love the way this starts. Hey, Davids, greetings from snowy Germany. That paints a picture. Makes me a little wistful because, I mean, who doesn't want spring to come? And I can't quite remember whether Punxsutawney, I think Punxsutawney Phil said it's going to be a little bit longer winter this year, Groundhog Day in the U.S., but... We barely had any snow this year in the Washington, D.C. area, and so I'm still cheering on some snow. So thank you, Andreas. Greetings from snowy Germany. David Kretzmann, let's play really fast lightning round word association. You ready? Sure. Snow. Cold. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Am I playing this right? <laughs> and, and I guess really what I was trying to get at, my fault, David, is do you like snow? Do you like cold? Uh. I, I don't mind it. It's it's not something I'll go out of my way to enjoy. I, I, I am living in Austin, Texas now. So aside from maybe like once or twice a year, we're, we're right. not accustomed to too much snow down here. But you bet. yeah, a little bit of snow here and there. I'm all for it. Wonderful city. Well, greetings from snowy Germany. Andreas Ham writes, I listened to the blast from the past episode. The first blast about sleep number is one that I encourage every fool to follow. However, I made one tiny enhancement to that idea for myself that some may want to consider as well. My sleep number is not derived, Andreas writes, from my top one, but from my top three holdings. Now, put a fork in it for a sec here. Let's just talk about this briefly. The sleep number, the way that I've defined it and used it as a tool for rule breaker investing is, this is the amount that you're willing to put into your very highest 
holding your largest percentage of allocation into a single stock and there's no right or wrong answer well maybe a hundred is a wrong answer but there's it's all it's very individual david as you and i would understand you always looking over members at the motley fool and member success and what it means you know david that there's not a single sleep number am i right Absolutely. Everyone's a little bit different. People have different risk tolerance, volatility tolerance, different goals, different timelines. So every person's going to have their own unique score or number. And so what Andreas is doing is he is suggesting that maybe it's not just about one stock or your biggest. He's broadening it to say, well, what if you did it for your top three holdings? I'll pick it up right there. Andreas writes, I want to avoid the possibility that my top three holdings will take over 50% of my portfolio value. Therefore, each holding on average would have a sleep number of around 17, which doesn't seem that high if you'd consider a single stock, you know, one-sixth of your wealth in a single stock. I would say, especially for younger people who are building towards something, that probably is more practicable. If we're talking about somebody who's further along the path of life, that might, for some people, even the number 17 might be a little bit too high. But again, it's all relative and no judgment. I certainly have a higher sleep number myself. Paul Ward, our previous correspondent, said his was 30. So we're all at different places. But Andreas goes on with a Gardner-Kretzmann continuum. And we always love this, David, to the second decimal point. Oh, yeah. Of 1.06 at the age of 34. You can see why those three stocks make me uncomfortable if they make up over half of my portfolio. Now, David... He mentions what the stocks are. We'll talk about those in a sec. But what are your initial reactions as you hear Andreas's mindset? Well, first of all, I think it's awesome to have. I, I think that number is thirty-five or thirty-six stocks at the age of thirty-four. I think that's that's a, a a great number, a very solid foundation. And I think Andreas is approaching this in a great way, thinking about not only the GKC score, how many stocks you hold, but also the the sleep number score. Am I comfortable? Am I sleeping well at night? Not only with the comp- with the number of stocks, but also the allocation and composition of those stocks. So I think this is a, a great, great approach to one's portfolio. So thank you for that. And I agree. And let's go on to the three stocks that do make up his three biggest holdings. They're companies I know that you know and I recognize as well. He calls them wonderful in his note. The three are Advanced Micro Devices, AMD. NVIDIA, which is, of course, NVDA, and the Trade Desk, longtime full favorite, ticker symbol TTD, which he mentions he originally got from our German Motley Fool Services. NVIDIA and the Trade Desk for Andreas have been 10 baggers. Uh, while he says he's a bit late to the AMD party with just a three bagger on average, again, given how far down the market is, and even a stock like the Trade Desk was from its highs, these are still remarkable performances. David, do you own any of those stocks? I own NVIDIA and Trade Desk. Uh, AMD, I, I don't own, though. That seems to be a very popular stock among you know the, the younger uh, generation. So maybe I'll have to take a look at it. And David, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what is your present approximate GKC yourself right now? I'm probably right around like 2.25, give or Which take. Which is Remarkable. The reason that you and I unwittingly co-created this important concept years ago is because I simply was asking you at approximately the age of 25, how many stocks you had? And you said you had like 50. (laughs) And I thought that that was pretty remarkable and actually a real achievement for somebody at that younger age when we first talked about this. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I've I've always enjoyed owning a lot of stocks. Like Peter Lynch said, there's uh, 
there's no stock I, I meet that I don't like, something uh, to that effect. So for me, I love kind of collecting stocks and just tracking them over time. It's not for everyone, uh, but for me, I think that GKC will, will be two or higher for quite a long time. That's wonderful. And I'm going to say mine is still right around 1.0. I'm not even sure I bought uh, any new stocks in the last couple of years, so I might be slightly under 1.0, but don't, don't tell anybody. Still All got right. time to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me pick up with Andreas's question. So those stocks constantly, he mentions, take up over 50% of his portfolio these days. And he's always wondering, which of these darlings, he writes, should I cut, not kill, should I cut, if at all? considering buying high and never selling, which is something that at least on this podcast and for my rule breaker approach, I advocate not everybody at The Motley Fool would even agree with that. We have many different Motley approaches, but that certainly is true of generally how I invest. He mentions AMD and NVIDIA operate in similar market segments. Uh, he, he knows those very well. He's probably a technologist of some way, shape, or form himself. Unlike the trade desk, where he now relies in part on our Epic Bundle team's insights. So here's the challenging question he's been asking of himself. Would you rather cut a company whose market you understand, whose products or services you love, or whose prospects for growth seem higher despite knowing less about the market and not using the product or service yourself? He does say... And I'm asking you this question, David, but he does say there is no right or wrong answer. I, I'm glad you put that in there, but I'm probably going to challenge giving the wrong answer. Uh, we'll let Andreas <laughs> and you be the judge of that. <laughs> it's a great question, though. And, and for me, I, I think um, what Andreas mentioned where, you know, it, it's not kill, it's cut. You know, we're talking about trimming, not completely removing. So I think well that's, that's the right mindset here. Personally, I, I would probably maybe cheat the question a little bit and maybe just trim an equal percentage across all three, unless there is like a single one or two companies in there that you really aren't losing any sleep at night, kind of almost regardless of what the sleep number score uh, or what the percentage of your portfolio, th those one or two stocks make. But, but for me, like barring a single company where it's uh, top of mind, where you want to own more and more of that, that company within your portfolio, my, my personal leaning would be trim an equal amount across all three as a starting point, and then maybe do additional trimming from there as needed. But something to that effect would be where my head goes. Thank you. I agree with you. So let's hope that's not the wrong answer. I do, <laughs> I do think that uh, the, the reason that I think about the sleep number or advocate that or put that out there is exactly to have conversations like this with ourselves or sometimes with our friends or on a podcast in order to make sure you're asking, am I getting enough sleep at night? Am I invested in a way? Am I allocated into stocks in a way that makes me truly comfortable? And so I feel as if, Andreas, the sleep number is functioning properly for you. You're asking this question at this time, and David and I both favor an approach that typically has this kind of dollar cost averaging, like not necessarily deciding to go big or small with any one of those three, but to take a general approach. Again, there might be a reason that anybody listening to us would differ. If, for example, they know one of these companies much better or they feel in their heart of hearts that one of these has played out a little bit more than the other. I don't think it's wrong necessarily to, to do it non-equally. But if you do that, I would say keep score and learn from it. Jim Mueller, David, I think would say write a journal entry to yourself about that and then reflect back uh, later on to see whether you were right or wrong or what you can learn from that.
Absolutely. Yeah. For for my own portfolio, anytime I buy or sell a stock, I'll even just jot down a sentence or two about Love you it. Know, you know, what's the market cap valuation metrics or just other things I'm watching with the stock? Why am I reducing my position or adding to my position? And it's never set in stone. You know, uh, there, there'll be stocks that I sell this year that I look to buy back into over time and vice versa. Um, so I, I like that approach. Keep score, journal, uh, you know, track your, your record over time and, and learn from it. And I love how Andreas completes this note. You saw this because I shared it with you ahead of time, David. But he writes, when I add companies to my portfolio, I try to imagine a future where the products and services I love will be used and needed even more than today. So David Kretzman, I say this is a fellow business-focused investor, somebody who really is trying to make his portfolio reflect his best vision for the future. He ended it by saying, maybe you can have another analyst to the mailbag episode for an additional view or story on this question. Well, this week we got the man himself, David Kretzman. David, I'm so glad to be paired with you again. Thanks for leaning in and joining. I think I've, I don't know, I think I've been maybe interviewing outside authors or something on this podcast. I've, I've missed you. We need to do this more in 2023, maybe than 2022. It's a delight to hear from you and to know that your GKC is still exceeding two. Always a pleasure, David. And yeah, let's have a GKC check-in another time this year. It's always fun. Whenever you come on, I think it triggers more future mailbag items, and it's a delight. So keep up the great work on behalf of our members, David Kretzman, in good markets and in bad. It's been tough, and we've all felt that. And yet, I do feel as if we're probably near the end of it. Maybe have already. Maybe the David. Maybe the market bottom in October. We'll we'll know with hindsight 2020 about two years from now. We'll know when we know, but I think uh, one one date we need to circle on the calendar is the 10-year special of the GKC's uh, origination. I think we're getting close to that, as you I mentioned. Am, I am going to go back and, and figure out which was the original podcast and date, and we will definitely date that and celebrate a full anniversary on that one. So David Kretzen, full on, my friend. Full on. You know, it takes good mailbag items to make a mailbag episode from one month to the next. And it takes really good people to write good mailbag items. Our email address is rbi at fool.com. It is a delight each month to share some of the best questions, thoughts, and occasional poems that I get from this community. Thank you once again for suffering fools gladly. And I want to thank Jim Mueller and David Kretzman for leaning in as well. I hope you have a wonderful, I'm even going to say maybe a little bit snowy, I don't know, week ahead. And until next week, full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.